Introducing Christianity to Mormons, a new book by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and published by Harvest House Publishers is a resource that will help you share your faith with Latter-day Saint friends and loved ones. Order your copy of Introducing Christianity to Mormons at mrm.org. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Our thanks to Adams Road Band for that musical introduction. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We've been reminiscing over some of the sites that we saw during the summer of 2022 when Eric, myself, and a friend of ours, Trevor Wolf, visited Nauvoo, Illinois, Kirtland, Ohio, and Palmyra, New York. And as I've mentioned in previous shows, the purpose of visiting these sites was to hear for ourselves what tour guides were saying about these places in Mormon history. In yesterday's show, we ended with our being in a portion of the Newell K. Whitney store in Kirtland, Ohio. And as I explained, the Newell K. Whitney store was located north of the Kirtland Temple down the hill. And we are being shown the grounds by a retired couple, a very nice couple, and they've taken us into the Newell K. Whitney store, and now we are upstairs where once was located what was known as the School of the Prophets. This becomes important for Latter-day Saints because it was around this time in this area where Joseph Smith receives the revelation regarding the Word of Wisdom that instructs Latter-day Saints to refrain from drinking hot drinks, which would include coffee and tea, as well as abstaining from tobacco products and alcohol products as well. While we were sitting in this small room, and as I mentioned, we were with some other friends who had joined us at this time. It was Bill and Grace and another friend named John. So there's six of us in this small room, and after our tour guide is giving us an explanation of what this room was used for, he opened up for questions. And since there's just us six there, and he knows we are not members of the LDS Church, I wanted to ask him about the word restoration. And I think the way I phrased the question was something like, I've been on a number of tours run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I keep hearing this word restoration being used over and over again. He was politely listening to me, and then I formed my question. Since I do have a pretty good grasp of what Christian history and Christian doctrine is all about, what confuses me about this word is the fact that a lot of what Latter-day Saints believe really is not a restoration at all, because a lot of what they believe is very unique. It was never a part of Christianity. We don't, for instance, find the early Christians doing temple participation and learning secret handshakes and passwords that they think are going to get them in the celestial kingdom of God. We don't find polygamy really being a part of Christian history. We don't see anything like that. A lot of the things 
that Latter-day Saints believe and, of course, sets them apart and outside of the umbrella of Christianity are things that Christians never believed. I was hoping he would give me somewhat of an answer, but instead, what did he do, Eric? He merely said, why don't we just focus on things that we agree on? And he said something to the effect, well, we all believe in Jesus. Like, let's just talk about that. Well, I could have very well done that, but in doing that, I would have to point out that even their understanding of Jesus is unique and not something that Christians have ever believed. Well, at that point, his wife said to her husband, well, we need to show them the sawmill. So we got up and we left the Newell K. Whitney store, went and saw the sawmill and also the ashery, as they call it, and then we left. It was a very amicable meeting, and I would say that this was, again, a very nice couple that was leading us around. The way that he shut you down is oftentimes what we'll get when we're talking to Latter-day Saints on the street, because they don't necessarily want to talk about the differences. They just want to be friendly, and, well, you're a Christian as well, so are we. Showing the differences is not very popular, but it was apparent. I think he was on guard when you were asking the question. I watched him as you were asking the question, and you could see his furrowed brow. And how is he going to deal with this? By just shutting it down like the way he did. Well, after we left this area of Kirtland, Ohio, we went to have lunch with our friends. And then after lunch, we bid them goodbye. And we proceeded on heading towards Palmyra, New York. It's kind of a drive, especially since we're starting out later in the afternoon. But we get there late afternoon, and there's not a whole lot of time to really go see any of the sites, except a couple of sites that we knew did not have tour guides there that we could go and visit ourselves. And so one of those sites, the first one, was Alvin Smith's grave. Alvin Smith was the brother of Joseph Smith, and he's buried just north of the main street in Palmyra, New York. And so we went out there and we found his grave. It's in the Swift Cemetery, as it's called. And it reads on there that Alvin Smith died in his 25th year of his life. According to the 1981 edition of the Pearl of Great Price, which includes Joseph Smith's history, it reads this way in Joseph Smith History 1, verse 4. It says, his family consisting of 11 souls, namely my father, Joseph Smith, my mother, Lucy Smith, whose name previous to her marriage was Mac, daughter of Solomon Mac, my brothers, Alvin, who died November 19, 1823, in the 26th year of his age, Hiram, myself, Samuel Harrison, William, Don Carlos, and my sister, Sophronia, Catherine, and Lucy. Now, most people probably wouldn't think this would be a big deal, but it kind of is a big deal because it's not really worded that way on Alvin's headstone. It says, for instance, that he died in his 25th year of his life, whereas the 1981 edition of the Joseph Smith's History said that he died in his 26th year of his age. It says that he died on November 19, 1823. Now, if you were to read the 1851 Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith does give an account of his family members. And when he mentions Alvin, in parentheses, it merely says, who is now dead. There's no specifics as to when he died or how old he was when he died. But what I find kind of fascinating about this, I'm holding in my hand a 1973 edition of the Pearl of Great Price. It says, 
my brother's Alvin, who died November 19, 1824, in the 27th year of his age. That's quite a discrepancy. Yeah, we have all these different accounts about Alvin. Now, Alvin doesn't play a significant role in the LDS movement, that's for sure. But this is something that's important because it would be Alvin that Joseph Smith would claim would later visit him after he was dead while he was in the Kirtland Temple. Now, what makes this date of November 19th, 1824, very suspicious is that Joseph Smith's father had Alvin's body disinterred or dug up. What did we find about this, Eric? I'm reading from uh, uh, Wikipedia, but uh, biographer Fawn M. Brody, they write, the Smith family heard a rumor that Alvin's body had been exhumed and dissected. Fearing it to be true, the elder Smith uncovered the grave on September 25th, 1824, and inspected the corpse. Following the exhumation, Joseph Smith Sr. printed the following in a local newspaper on September 29th, 1824. This is what was in the newspaper. Quote, to the public, whereas reports have been industrially put in circulation that my son Alvin had been removed from the place of his internment and dissected, which reports are peculiarly calculated to harrow up the mind of a parent and deeply wound the feelings of relations. Therefore, for the purpose of ascertaining the truth of such reports, I, with some of my neighbors this morning, repaired to the grave and removing the earth, found the body which had not been disturbed. The method is taken for the purpose of satisfying the minds of those who may have heard the report and of informing those who have put it in circulation that it is earnestly requested they would desist therefrom. Now, that was on September 25th, 1824. So obviously, the date that is in the 1973 edition of Joseph Smith's History cannot be accurate because it says that Alvin died on November 19th, 1824. So that would mean that they're digging up his body before he died. That doesn't make any sense at all. It makes you wonder, how can they get these dates all wrong? How can they get this information inaccurate? You would think these fact checkers would be a little more meticulous in how they put all this information into print, especially since the Pearl of Great Price is a part of Mormon scripture. After we stop by the grave of Alvin Smith, we continue down the road to what is known as the Martin Harris Farm. Now, there's a building there, a house there, and when I was there very many years ago, you couldn't visit it because it was privately owned. Apparently, it still is, even though there's a big parking lot next to it now, which is a little bit confusing. But we were there too late anyway, if they were even having any type of tours at all. There was nobody there at the time we arrived. But this isn't even the farmhouse that Martin Harris lived in. He left Palmyra around 1831. His house would burn down later on in the 1840s, and it would be rebuilt in 1850. So it really has nothing to do with Martin Harris. But what makes Martin Harris significant is that this is the same Martin Harris that was once Joseph Smith's scribe. Now, there's a website that has some information on this. Why don't you read what's on that website? Yeah, the website is ensignpeakfoundation.org, and this is what they wrote. Martin was considerably older than Joseph and first learned of the boy prophet in 1827 when he hired Joseph Sr. and Hiram. 
Martin acted as scribe as Joseph Smith began the translation of the plates that contained the Book of Mormon. Martin's wife, Lucy, became offended that she was not allowed to see the plates which Martin was helping Joseph translate. After pleading with the prophet to allow him to show his family the manuscript, it was here that Martin Harris brought the 116-page manuscript which was stolen from him. As a result, he was no longer allowed to act as a scribe in translating the Book of Mormon. Now, let's think about that. Joseph Smith loses 116 pages of the handwritten manuscript that Harris himself had written. Harris loses this manuscript. Now, you would think if Joseph Smith is truly a prophet of God, all he needs to do, if he's really translating this text off of, well, at this time, it would be the seer stone that Joseph Smith would put into a hat and the characters would appear on the stone. Why couldn't he just duplicate that and bring about another 116 pages that reads virtually the same way? But Smith doesn't do that. Instead, he decides he's going to go to another section of the plates, as we are led to believe, and give a more vague account or a less definitive account of what we find in the first part of the Book of Mormon. Now, you would think this would be suspicious to most people. As family members of Joseph Smith, I could see them turning perhaps a blind eye. But Martin Harris, what's the matter with you? Can't you see you're being used? Certainly, you would think that if he could not duplicate what he had before by the means that he uses that there's something wrong here. But do a lot of Latter-day Saints really understand the story behind the lost 116-page manuscript? Perhaps not. Perhaps many of them do. But you see, this again is the danger when you look to an individual who claims to be a prophet and you believe him in what he says about himself. At times, that could make you less critical of some of the things that he says and less critical of some of the things that he does. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.